Is that not gorgeous? With all the extra brass flair to that song. Just glorious. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, he has risen. All right, now that's, that's okay. That's, that, that, was, that was okay. But I'm going to add a line for you. Because it's not enough that he just rose. The question is, have you risen in him? So, we're going to try it again. And what I want you to say is not only he is risen indeed, but say, he is risen indeed, and I am risen in him. So let's try it again. He is risen. All right, now that's going to come into play here moments for now, as this is not only uh, an Easter service, but we are going to be looking at one of my favorite Easter texts. And so I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We are beginning this morning a new sermon series where, Lord willing, we will work through the entire book. This morning we begin with the introduction of the book here in these first 11 verses. When you have Ecclesiastes 1, I also invite you to stick your finger there and turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, where I will read some verses uh, from 1 Corinthians 15. The title of the sermon this morning is, Something New Has Risen with the Sun, and Your Labor is No Longer in Vain. Beginning with Ecclesiastes 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanities of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the labor at which he labors under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. 
And now for 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we come into this place today, we come with many cares and concerns. We come, many of us, with doubts and struggles. We come with frustrations. We come as those who feel out of balance feeling as though things have changed so much and so fast that it's hard for us to understand and therefore feel as though we are floating at sea with the horizon changing here and there and everywhere. And so fix our eyes again this morning upon the horizon that exists because this world is in your hands and because a new world has been brought into existence in the resurrection of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for many weeks now, we as a church have been looking at the meaning and the significance of our name, Grace covenant church, a name that is, uh, comes to us from the scripture, a name that comes to us as it is a reflection of God's covenant of grace, God's gracious provision and promise in which he told sinful, fallen mankind that he would not leave us in our sin and misery. He would not leave us under the curse of sin and death, but that he would provide a champion. He would provide one who would come. And this champion would come on behalf of God for the purpose of bringing salvation and deliverance to his people. This champion would accomplish this by being struck within the process. And yet, even as he receives a blow, he delivers a death blow to the enemy. Friday night, we celebrated here a Good Friday service in which we celebrated that transaction that is so difficult for us to understand that Jesus Christ as a righteous son of God who was sinless was betrayed he was arrested 
He was found guilty even though he had no sin. And he was hung on a cross as if he were a sinner. And he died. But not because of his sin, but because of our sin imputed to him. And in that transaction of Jesus dying on the cross, that became the final blow to the great enemy, Satan himself, as it is in Christ's death that Jesus is able to provide life. Our sin had put us under the curse of death. Jesus took that curse upon himself. And now as the one who was raised, he is giving his life, sharing his life. And what it means for us to be a church, those who are under the the kingship of Jesus Christ, is that we are those who have this kind of champion. And this is the mode in which God has revealed his grace. A grace that comes to those who are undeserving. A grace that comes in fullness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And for us to be a church who are following Jesus, for us to call ourselves Grace Covenant, is for us to embrace that grace in the fullness of that grace as it comes to us in Jesus Christ so that we can embody that grace to one another and to those who are outside these walls. That our identity and that our calling is taken up with the realities of a crucified Savior who was raised in victory. So that we as His people manifest that grace in that same form of a humility that entrusts ourselves to the Father even when things seem to be, and especially when things seem to be crumbling all around us. It is so easy to think that because we are in Christ and because we have this victory over sin and death, that our lives now within this world must perfectly reflect that victory. And so therefore, as God's people, those who are the winners, obviously that means our lives should reflect winning. But it doesn't. And so how are we going to respond? Well, God tells us, you're going to reflect my son's humility and his grace with the way that you treat one another and with how you interact with those outside of these walls. To do this within these walls, along with others, who, like us, still do what? Still sin. I am still someone who struggles with sin. And that sin with which I struggle is not only something I struggle with in private, it is something that I struggle with if with you. I know this is, well, it's, not, it's really not that hard to believe. 
I am not perfect. <laughs> and we're going to have struggles. You're not perfect. And you're going to have struggles. The struggle doesn't define us, though, God says. It is the new life that we have in Jesus Christ and the fullness of his grace that we have received by which we interact with God through that grace for ourselves and we interact with one another through that grace for one another. We are going to have struggles with those who are outside these walls. Jesus, in our readings Friday night, said, look, they hate me. And they're going to hate you. Until he returns, there is going to be a friction that exists between the church and the world. And how do we deal with, how do we respond to that friction we are told? We embody the grace and humility of our Lord Jesus Christ even as and especially when we stand for truth. We do not go along to get along, but neither do we beat people over the head into submission. This is really hard. This is not easy. It is really easy not to be gracious. It is very natural not to be gracious. It requires a whole lot of trust and discipline to interact with one another in grace and to embody and extend that grace to those outside of these walls. And the reason that it is so difficult is not because sin has continued to be a reality in my life and in your life and in certainly in the world's life. It is because so often living life as a follower of Jesus Christ has us in situations that are not all that clear and easy with knowing how do I respond right now? How do I interact with my brother or my sister on something that we disagree with? How do I interact with someone out in the world with whom they, I see that they have bought into a lie and I see the way that that lie is destroying them? And when I offer to them the truth in grace, they respond with hating me. How do I continue to try to serve that person without retaliating? without escalating. Well, if they're going to yell at me, I'll yell back. Or if they're going to get angry with me, I'm going to argue them into a corner so that they see that they shouldn't even try to argue with me because I have the, all, I have the truth. How do we interact with one another in these walls and with those outside of these walls? How do we do it? When sometimes, in fact, quite often, there's not a clear, black and white, easy response. Sometimes there is. I like those times. But a lot of times there's not. And so what do we do? Well, God gives us what we refer to as the wisdom books. He gives us 
wisdom that comes from above in order to help us know how to live out the, uh, who we are in Jesus Christ to one another into the world. He gives us wisdom to help us to learn how to respond, especially when things are not clear, when they are not easy, when they are not black and white. He gives us wisdom. Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom. And it is a book of wisdom that very purposefully has been provided to us to help us with the gray. You see, even within the scripture, not all wisdom books are the same. Some wisdom books, like Proverbs, provide very clear instruction about if you want to live the good life, and if under the old covenant, experience the blessings of that covenant, well, here's what you do, and here's what you don't do. And it's very clear for the most part. Now, sometimes it's not as clear, but on the overall, scholars will tell you that when you look at the wisdom contained in a book like Proverbs, it's very straightforward. It's like what many of us learned in school, right? How do I spell receive? Right? And what's the rule? Wrong. That's not the rule. That's the first part of the rule. One of my favorite things is this coffee cup that I have seen advertised that I haven't bought yet, but I really want to, that says, I before E, unless after C, unless, and then it has this run-on sentence with one word after another that doesn't follow the rule. You see, even in grammar, it's not always I before E unless after C. There are exceptions, and there is a longer rule, and I don't know that rule myself. So I before E, unless after C, and then where's Daniel? Daniel knows it, so ask Daniel afterwards. I before E, unless after C, unless, and then there's da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Say it. Well, it sounds like A in neighbor and way. The point is, even in language, which has to have rules for a language to function. There are exceptions. And what do we do with those? Ecclesiastes is not like Proverbs. It is, it is a, a book of wisdom that is more like that last part of that grammar rule. I before E unless or C unless, and then it kind of throws out the exceptional cases and how we deal with those. Now, there, are clear, there is clear information in Ecclesiastes as well. I'm not saying that there's not. But overall, in terms of the tenor, it is a different type of wisdom than what you see in Proverbs. And we need this type of wisdom. We need Proverbs. We need to know the basics and the rules and, and, and how to engage on, at that level. But we also need help when things don't nicely, neatly fit. And so we have this book of wisdom 
a book of wisdom that I believe comes to us from Solomon. Now, not everyone agrees with that. Some believe that, um, well, before I get to that, we have a book of wisdom that is really trying to help us with the gray areas, and it comes to us from Solomon, but yet when we look at the way that it reads, there are two voices that you will find in the book. There are two voices that we find here in the introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. You have the narrator who introduces the preacher and then lets the preacher speak. And if you go uh, to chapter 12, what you'll find is is, uh, chapter 12, verse 9, the narrator comes back. And from 9 to 14, which is the very end, the narrator provides um, a, a, an encapsulation and a summary of what the preacher has said. There are two voices. There is the narrator, and then there is the preacher. The preacher here, this is where the name of the book comes from. So in the Hebrew Bible, this book is known as Koheleth. It is a word that means preacher. It is a word that, that, me, that, that comes from the Hebrew word kahal, which means to call. Now, if you, now, for the language nerds, you're starting to make some connections right now. You have koheleth, which is someone who calls people to himself in order to speak. And you have the English word for the book, ecclesiastes, which are Greek people in here know, comes from Greek verb ek kaleo, which also means to call. It's where we get the Greek word ecclesia, or ecclesia, which is the Greek word for assembly, or church. And so whether it's in Hebrew, whether it's in Greek, or whether it's in English, what we have is a book that is described as someone who has called an assembly of people in order to share with them. And he is sharing his wisdom with them. If you want to see an example of this in the Old Testament, you can read this afternoon from 1 Kings 8, where Solomon is the Koheleth who calls the assembly to himself in order to lead the assembly uh, in worship. And so you have the narrator and you have the preacher. The preacher is described here as the son of David who is king in Jerusalem. He is also, he describes himself later as one who sought wisdom and who was given lots of wisdom. He describes himself throughout the whole book as someone who has a lot of resources which has allowed him to do all of the tests that he has done, that he has learned from. Now, not everyone believes this is Solomon, and that's because they, they, they say, well, he also says here that he knew more than the kings before him. And 
there were only two kings before Solomon, so doesn't that provide or present a problem? And I would say no, because he says here very specifically, king in Jerusalem. And guess what? Jerusalem didn't start with the Jews. The Jebusites lived there. Age after age after age, and they were known as a people with strong kings. You have uh, here some that say, well, there's a problem with the language because the Hebrew that you find here in Ecclesiastes fits more of the Hebrew that you see in the later parts of the Old Testament after the people had gone into exile in Babylon and had come back that there are Babylonian and Persian influences to the Hebrew. And guess what? There are. But that doesn't mean that the content did not come from Solomon, because guess what? The English translation that you're reading right now is not the same English translation that your grandparents read. Because guess what? Language, it changes, it develops. And so you and I don't read the King James. And by the way, the King James that exists now is not the same King James version that came out in 1611. Language changes, it develops, it gets influenced, but the content of what you have in your English Bible is still the content that God provided. Even if language has changed in order for uh, those who now speak English in the 21st century have to have it written in a way that we better understand. And so the fact that there is Babylonian and Persian influences to the language, big deal. It does not mean that the content itself had to come from the later parts of the history of Israel. Some say, well, there's a problem here because of the obvious influence of Greek philosophy as you read through this book and there is so much about Epicureanism and skepticism and cynicism and stoicism and hedonism and if this was from Solomon well that philosophy didn't develop in among the Greeks until later and so obviously it can't come from Solomon well anyone who actually knows the history of philosophy understands ideas Though they took on particular labels by the Greeks, the ideas predated the Greeks. The idea of, of life as presented by Epicurus were ideas that had been around for ages. So no, that's not a good reason to say that, that this uh, had to come after Solomon. The problem, we're told, is when you read through the book, there's a huge issue with decadence and wickedness that is being described among those who are receiving this wisdom. And that doesn't match up with the golden age of Solomon. It's clear, and I agree with those who say this, that the recipients, if you look at this book, they are preoccupied with all sorts of social and economic issues. They're, they're concerned about the volatility of the economy, the possibility of wealth, inheritance, social status, the fragility of life, and the ever-present shadow of death. Now, that doesn't fit the golden era as described under the time of Solomon. And yet I would say that throughout the history, 
of God's people. Even King David himself wrestled and struggled with these issues, including adultery and murder. The leadership at the time in which Solomon lived was certainly wrestling and struggling with these issues and these sins. And when you read the prophetic books leading up to the time in which both the northern and southern kingdoms would be judged by God and be sent away from God, it is always that the leadership is doing these very things. The kings, the prophets, the priests, the leadership within the people of God are struggling with these things and we're told that they would lie on their bed and they would figure out ways of how to trick their own people out of their inheritance so that they could get wealthier. So, no, I would say that that does not present the issue that this has to come after Solomon. The content is Solomon's content. Because Solomon is this one who was a king, who did seek after wisdom, who was blessed with amazing resources, but who also walked away from God for a time. And he started living according to the values and the practices of the cultures of the surrounding nations. But in God's grace, toward the end, Solomon repented and he was restored. And what we have here, beloved, is the wisdom of someone who walked away from God tried to live according to the values of this world, and he saw that the world had nothing of value, of lasting or ultimate value to provide. As we look through this book, we're looking at the wisdom of someone who was a believer, who walked away for a time, tried to learn from the world, and figured out some really important lessons that he is passing along to the people of God back then and to you and me right now. That where we can become tempted to live according to the values, to the principles, to the philosophies of the culture around us, it does not provide us anything of lasting or ultimate value. In this book, we will see this phrase, as we see here um, in the opening verses, this life under the sun. He asks the question, what is the meaning of life in this world? But this is how he asks it. What's the profit of one's labor under the sun? This is a question about meaning. This is a question about purpose. What is the purpose? What is the meaning? What does it profit Someone's labor under the sun. This labor or this toil is a key word for us here as it takes us, obviously, back to Genesis 3. 
and the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and the result of what God says to Adam, because of this sin, you will toil, you will labor. By the sweat of your brow, you will exist within the world as it exists now because of sin. And in grief and in pain, you will experience life under the sun. Under the sun is a way of talking about the world as it exists in and of itself. It is a way of expressing imminence. It is a way of expressing limitedness. The world as it exists, as the sun circles around it. And what is the world like, we are told? It is a world here that is presented as being without God. He mentions creation, but he doesn't mention the God of creation. He reflects upon the created world, and he reflects upon it as it seems to be a closed system of cause and effect. He describes it as a cold machine that runs on and on and on and on, but it's not really going anywhere. It is a world that is impersonal. It is a world that, that exists at the whim of impersonal forces that are just at play. A generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth just remains on and on and on and on. It's not going anywhere. In fact, he describes it as being circular. The sun, it goes on and on. It goes around the world and it, it comes up, it goes down, but guess what? It rushes back to where it can come up again. And it goes up and it goes down. It goes up and it goes down. The wind, the wind exists on circuits where it follows certain patterns and always comes back and returns and it replays the pattern over and over and over. The streams and the seas we see here being worked out, that water cycle that exists. And that the water, it comes and it goes. And it goes here, but it's never full here. And yet more comes over here and it comes over here, but it's not full. And yet more comes over here. You see what's going on? The world under the sun is a world that appears to function as a cold, impersonal machine of cause and effect. And man within this world is wearied and he's never satisfied the eye sees but it keeps on looking the ear hears but it keeps on listening and the end result of this world as it is described here under the sun is that what has been is what will be what has been done is what will be done again there is nothing new under the sun. And the result for you and for me is that we're going to be born, we're going to live, we will come out of that life with nothing, we will die, and then we'll be forgotten. We won't even get to be someone's memory forever. Now, obviously... Solomon is not presenting the world as Solomon believes it to be. What Solomon is saying is, if you start 
where you're looking for your meaning and purpose in life and what you start with is this world, this is all you get. The answer, if you're looking for life, if you're looking for meaning and purpose within this life as it exists under the sun, well, the answer is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Something needs to come from outside the system to affect the system in order for that system to change and to be different. But what he says is life under the sun, it doesn't allow for there to be anything transcendent. It doesn't allow for anything outside of the system. What you get is the sun, the moon, and the stars, and this world, and that's it. And the result is that life is vain. This word for vanity, it comes from the Hebrew word hevel. Hevel, it's what you experienced this morning because it was so cold. And as you walked outside, and on a beautiful Easter morning, visually, you had to feel the cold, crisp air. You got to see the air as it left your mouth, as it was a vapor. But did you watch it? Did you watch it float? And did you walk alongside it and see where it went? No. Why? Because it disappeared. You could see your breath, and then it was gone. It dissipated. That is Hevel. That is what he means by vanity. It means that its life is a breath. Here today, gone tomorrow, as James says. Life is meaningless. It is insignificant. It is vain. It is futile. Life is short. Life is elusive. Life is repetitive. Life is finite. A world that exists only under the sun with nothing outside of it is a world that is vain and futile. And so what are you left with? Well, John Bunyan tells us, you're left with a carnival. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there is a time in which Christian and faithful, they come upon a city. But it's no ordinary city. It is a city that is arranged as a carnival. It is called Vanity Fair. It is a land that is a special real estate holding of Elzebub. It is a place that is described as, as having allure because of its glamour, because of its glitz, because of its fashion and power. And everything in Vanity Fair is, is something that can be bought. And so if you just do what you need to do to get the money to buy it, you can have it. 
And what happens is Christian and faithful come into this Vanity Fair and their clothes are different. Their clothes reflect the clothing of their master. A master who is someone who is from another world. And their lives are reflective of the celestial city. Even though they're not there yet, their lives are already reflective of the life, of the culture, of the values of the celestial city. And as a result, as they come into Vanity Fair, the beginning is they come alongside and they try to get them to join them. And as soon as it becomes clear that they're not going to join them, what happens? They are thrown in prison and faithful lives up to his name as he is martyred because he will not give in to the values of Vanity Fair. He will not give in to the carnival of life in which life only exists for what you can get from it right here, right now, because there's nothing beyond here and now. Life is a carnival. Now, if I say carnival too many times... I will only smell cotton candy, right? You go and you ask the person. The worst thing is when they let you hold it yourself, right? And you put it in that steel drum and you just start circling, right? You get that big thing of cotton candy and you can smell it and you see it and it's got all the pretty colors and then you put it in your mouth and it's gone. Life under the sun is cotton candy. It is a momentary, sugary experience of air. And then it's gone. Birth, meaningless life, and then death. Fyodor Dostoevsky, in his famous work, The Brothers Karamazov, gives a line to one of the characters, Ivan Karamazov, in which he says, if God is dead, everything is permitted. Friedrich Nietzsche, the one that has done more to shape the current cultural values and practices in which we find ourselves had a short story that he wrote called Thus Spoke Zarathustra, in which this wise man has decided while he's on this mountaintop experience that God is dead. And so he comes down the mountain proclaiming, God is dead, God is dead. And what does that mean for Nietzsche? It means I do not have to be hemmed in by some idea that there is a transcendent God who has revealed to me what is true that requires me to answer to him. And so if I kill God, then I can only have to answer to myself. And then he decided, you know what? If God is dead then others don't have to answer to, to, them, to him either. But what they could do is they could start answering to me. And what has developed in Western society is a culture 
in which God is dead, so now everything is permitted, and so the strong will rise up and make the others serve them. It is a culture of power where the only thing that exists is power, where the only true important thing is power and what you can make others do, where history is now studied in light of, well, who was, was more powerful than whom? Who was enslaving whom? Who was using their power to make others do their will? Where history, where politics, where everything that exists within the culture now is understood through the paradigm of power. How does the church embody a cross that says the way to God is through giving up power and serving Christ? when the temptation is for us to protect ourselves by exercising power in response. What we will do, Lord willing, through this study is see how valuable this book is for us as a church in practicing evangelism within this world that exists today. Because we have neighbors that have become convinced that there is only life under the sun and they are looking for their answers in this cold, impersonal, mechanistic environment in which certain people are rising up to exercise power and force others to be a part of that plan. And the result is that the unbeliever around you, if they are honest, they will tell you that they are feeling hopeless, that they are feeling purposeless, that they are feeling as if life is meaningless and that it is futile. They are saying that it is as if life has become sugar-coated emptiness. And the reality is, beloved, is when someone is feeling that, and if they'll be honest enough to say it, what we get to say is, you're right. Life under the sun is vanity. Do you see how powerful this book can be to help us understand what unbelievers are dealing with and the fear and the anxiety and the angst and the desire to protect themselves and exercise power is motivating what they are doing and that they do it thinking that they are somehow creating a purpose for themselves and all they are doing is reinforcing the meaninglessness. Because what will they have at the end of the day? A grave. They will labor and it will be in vain.
but do you also see how vital this is for us then as the people of God for our discipleship? The Apostle Paul tells us, do not be conformed to the image of this world. This is why. And if we, like the people of God of old, fall into the same mistakes of trying to live life as God's people, but according to the values of the surrounding nations, we will experience that same level of meaninglessness, and we will do so without needing to. We will get bound up in certain things, in certain thoughts, certain feelings, certain uh, patterns that we will repeat in the practices of our lives where we will start to take on the idea that there is only life under the sun and so I've got to make something happen. I've got to grab the gusto. I've got to make this happen. I've got to do something. I've got to take it upon myself. And the reality that comes from that is we will sow to ourselves sin. And what does the psalmist tell us is the result? There will be groaning all day long. A groaning that is reflected in creation because of the fall. As the apostle says in Romans 8, that the whole world has been subjected to hevel because of Adam and Eve's sin. And that creation itself is groaning. Creation is groaning, and sin makes us groan. And we look to the world, we look to the repetition of all that the world can offer us, and all it can offer us is what it has offered from the very beginning when Satan offered to us, become your own gods. Is there, is that all there is? Is all that is before us is what has been repeated from the garden? Is Solomon right that under the sun there is nothing new? Under the sun there is nothing new. But beloved, the gospel of Jesus us that God did not leave us under the sun. But God has entered from outside of history, has come into history. And because of that, we now understand that this world, though is groaning under sin, is a world that is not a cold, mechanistic, closed system of cause and effect. It is a world that responds to the personal God who is loving, who is kind, who is gracious, and still offers his goodness to us. And even more than that, he has given us his son who has come from beyond the sun, who with the rising of the sun on that day as he did lay cold and dead in the grave was risen. And with Jesus Christ having risen from the dead, what has been introduced is a new creation, a new world, a new man who is victorious over sin and death, a new man who is not bound by sin and death. And with this new man, there is now a new humanity for everyone who has been risen with him in his resurrection. 
He is risen. If you don't connect that last phrase, then you do not have his hope. Beloved, there is something new. There is a risen Savior. There is a new world. And you and I will still deal with the old world. You and I will still have to live in Vanity Fair. But we do so as those who have been clothed with the righteous raiment of our King. And we are those who have the bouquet of his heavenly places about us as we go into this world. And we are those who reflect the glory of that risen king as we not only embrace Christ for ourselves, but as we embody and extend him to this world that is stuck in a meaningless, vain existence if they are without him but glory be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ who ransoms sinners from the feudal ways of their forefathers let's pray our heavenly father you have not left us under the power and penalty of sin You have not left us drowning in the futility of life under the sun. You have not left us at the whims of impersonal cold forces of cause and effect. And you certainly do not leave us stranded under the abuse of foreign powers seeking to press us into their mold and into their service. But you have freed us through the power of a resurrected king. And just as though, even as you have sustained a fallen world in order to accomplish the death and resurrection of your son, you sustain your people who still live in that fallen world. As we are those who follow you along the way, taking up our cross as we follow Jesus in order to reveal to the world that there is a life beyond the sun. And so bless us, we pray, with a clear understanding of our calling, with a faith that will follow Jesus Christ even into the valley of the shadow of death, so that we, as your people, might sit in the presence of our enemies and show them the feast that awaits those who will let go of trying to be their own God and embracing the one true God as he has come to us in Jesus Christ. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name.